want to go to there. Snipe! Hi, for those of you who just tuned in, everyone here is a crazy person. Are we having fun yet? <laughs> yes. Thirty Helens agree. Never mind. Maybe the dingo ate your baby. It's a cunning plan, actually. Would you believe it? And you beautiful tropical fish. Don't mention the war. Clear eyes, put hearts, keep us. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Televerse, Sound on Sites TV podcast. This is Kate Kolzik and I'm joined as ever by Simon Howell. Simon, how's it going? No one else is allowed to die this year. Can we just can we just outlaw dying? Yeah, after uh, the the fun of last year, the beginning of last year for people we care about in the arts dying, I was hoping that 2014 would be like a cleansing you know, fresh start and very no tragic deaths at the start of the year kind of year, and apparently not. Nope. But Phil Seymour Hoffman, of course, for somebody living under a rock with a Wi-Fi connection, able to download this podcast, uh, he passed away on Sunday, and um, he had a he had a new show that was going to be starting on Showtime, and it would have been wonderful to talk about that every week. Yes, it, it, it would have been nice to see him make the, the, the trip over to TV, although apropos of nothing... Out of all the horrible news that emerged this weekend, the only good piece I read for anyone who's interested was, of all people, written by Russell Brand. And it wasn't even in response to events. It was written a few months earlier for The Guardian on heroin use and post-drug addiction life. It's actually a fantastic read. He's, he has he has some deficiencies in other areas of public discourse, but that was a really great piece, which I suggest everyone look up. Yeah, I'll, I noticed that on Facebook that you shared that, so I'm gonna make the time to to read it a little later on. But there are some there are some lovely pieces out there right now uh, in tribute to Philip Seymour Hoffman. And uh, with that, we're going to move on to the rest of our week in, in television and talking about it. Uh, but certainly, he's an inc- incredible actor, and uh, his contributions will be greatly missed. Um, now for something completely different: listener feedback. So we talked with a bunch of you guys this week and uh, just a few of them. Beth, thank you for the Stuff to Blow Your Mind, Mind Palace podcast reference. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is one of the podcasts from How Stuff Works, and I love their family of podcasts. I listen to them all the time. We had Sarah and Dublina on who used to host uh, Stuff You Miss in History class forever ago to talk friends, but I didn't realize that Stuff to Blow Your Mind had done a Mind Palace podcast. Uh, that is on my queue, and I look forward to listening to it. Thank you. Also, last week you posited, Simon, uh, how is there not a what does the Fox Mulder say video? And there is. And, and it is, is glorious. It is pretty good. It's so good. <laughs> so thank you for sharing that with us, uh, Jean-Pierre and Genevieve. And uh, Mario agrees with us about American Horror Story, and he says that he's ready for the Americans. And as for we asked about Dreamcasting last, last week, he says maybe Faye Dunaway would come to TV, or uh, we could, he would like to see Michelle Williams in a romantic drama. Or maybe even Clive Owen in just a straight-up drama. Very interesting. uh, Carl also chimed in with that. He says, for his True Detective Season 2 Dreamcasting, he would like a David Simon alum version with Clark Peters and Andre Brower. And if he can't get that, then then Ryan Gosling and Joseph Gordon-Levitt or Kate Winslet and Elizabeth Moss. And regardless of which partner, you know, detective partnership they come up with, they need to have John Noble advising on the case because, I mean, clearly... Uh, and he would also like to see a different tone 
but still have it be focused on the detectives, not the case. And also, can it not be a serial killer? And I second that last bit particularly. Uh, Nick Pizzolatto, if I recall correctly, actually made a reference to, you know, in a future season, there might not even be any murders. They might just do a totally different form of crime, which would be great. But uh, since someone mentioned Clive Owen, uh, that's actually already happening. He's starring in Steven Soderbergh's upcoming miniseries. So nice. Done. And Carl also just finished up season one of Treme, and he loved it. So glad to hear it. Carl is looking forward to season two, and it just the show just gets better, as far as I'm concerned, all the way up through uh, through season three, and then there's a nice little coda of season four. It's great. So I look forward to hearing your thoughts. Also talked with uh, Caroline a bit about Much Ado About Nothing. She was live tweeting her first viewing of the Joss Whedon version i loved it my review of that is up at sound on site did you ever see much ado about nothing no i did not ah very i I, i'm a big fan of shakespeare big fan of joss whedon all those actresses of course i loved it but uh one of these times you'll have to watch it and then we can you know have discussion indeed uh, no new iTunes ratings or reviews this week, though, of course, we would appreciate it if anybody wanted to go over to one of our iTunes feeds, MP3 or M4A, and give us a rating or a review. And, of course, at the end of the show, how have I not mentioned this yet? Todd Vendor from the AV Club dropped by to talk X-Files. That was kind of huge. Yeah, we managed to keep it well under an hour, which is kind of shocking. It's astonishing for us. That almost never happens. So, uh, But that, that'll be coming at the end of the podcast. So much fun to have him back on. Slings and Arrows uh, was one of the highlights for us last year, which, of course, was Todd's first selection for the DVD shelf. And uh, so it was great to talk about a series we had a little more familiarity with. But uh, that'll be at the end of the show. For now, let's take a break and come back with our week in TV, starting with the comedies. Don't you wanna... She said, don't you, don't you wanna, don't you wanna fall in love tonight? Don't you, don't you wanna, don't you wanna fall in love tonight? She said, underneath the taffeta, ain't no better hiding place. If I see the moon, I'll just laugh it up. This week in comedy, we had a couple post-Super Bowl episodes, Brooklyn Nine-Nine's Operation Broken Feather and New Girls Party Time. There was Enlisted, Homecoming, Broad City, Pussyweed. Ah, oh, that's such a fun one to say. Okay, looking, looking at your browser history, Girls Only Child... Archer Vice, House Call. I'm still calling it Archer Vice. Nobody else is calling it Archer Vice, but I feel like I should. And uh, Parks and Rec, Anne and Chris. I also thought I should mention, we haven't been talking about it on the podcast, but I have actually really been enjoying Community on the spectrum of how much I like that show. It's much higher towards the, you know, the positive end of the spectrum, but I don't really have much to say, and you don't watch it, so that's why we haven't been talking about it. No, I feel the need to maybe try Rick and Morty again because I keep hearing that it's been really good and, and also that they've sort of tweaked the voice acting since the pilot, which was actually my principal concern, but uh, maybe later. Yeah, but for now, the ones we did watch, uh, you have not checked in with the Super Bowl stuff. As for the Super Bowl ads and all of that, I, I, you, I'm sure you didn't watch. You don't like, you don't like the sports 
Uh, well, no, and also we don't get the ads uh, up here in the Great White North unless we watch them online. Although I heard it was a pretty mediocre year. Yeah, there were some good ones. There were some some you know stupid ones like it always is. But uh, I, I, mean, I don't really have anything interesting to say about it. Yay, Renee Fleming saying the Starship Bangled Banner. I don't know why people always put it into four four just so that they can have drums under like military drums underneath. It's the song is written in three four. But anyways, a lot of the best versions, the Whitney Houston version and, of course, Renee Fleming's version as well, put at least part of it into 4-4. I'm sure nobody else cares about this, and so I'll transition <laughs> on to to the, the episodes that aired after the Super Bowl. For Brooklyn Nine-Nine, I thought it was the more entertaining of the two episodes. They played up Andre Brower really well, and I liked seeing him with Cruz, Terry Cruz. That whole thing worked very well for me. The uh, I really don't care about the Andy Samberg, Melissa Fumero romance thing that they seem to want us to care about at all uh but the, the rest does anyone of, i they, they seem to think that we do or somebody cares in the creative department but i really don't uh as for the the different uh guest appearances it was very odd to just and now there's uh uh adam sandler for 30 seconds it was that was very odd uh for me so i don't really know i i guess some people thought it was funny just didn't really work for me. Uh, but the rest of the episode I thought was pretty funny. As for New Girl, uh, did we really need a whole episode about do they, are they going to say the I love you thing? Because that just, the entire arc of that through the episode played exactly like everyone expected it would play. They must, I don't know anybody who could have possibly been surprised by that. So it was just very paint by numbers and uninteresting. The, all the print stuff was interest was fun. I thought most of it worked. I liked the subplots a lot. The whole uh, fire and ice thing was great. But the the will just say that she loves Nick thing. I mean, did anybody expect that she wasn't going to? I that I having not seen the episode that has to be one of the horriest sitcom tropes of all time. It's just happened so many times. And I would like to see if I'm if, if the show's going to do that, you know, it would be nice to see it the other way around. That would be slightly more interesting, but not much. Yeah, I, th there's no there's no winning in this scenario. It, it makes it sound like it was just a celebrity bolster filler. Yeah, but the, I did really enjoy the subplots. Like I said, the everybody else except for Nick and Jess was entertaining and the Prince stuff was was pretty fun. As for other comedies this week, I really liked Enlisted. You haven't had a chance to see it yet, but it was it was really entertaining, and it was the this is the first one that I hadn't seen yet, so it was fun to watch with everybody else and uh, see the reactions online, and also just the the half shirt was so ridiculous. You'll know what I'm talking about when you see it. It was ridiculous right. and entertaining. Let's move on to the one of the comedies that I haven't seen, which is episode two of Broad City. What did you think? Well, given that you didn't like the first episode, I can't imagine that this one would have sold you, but I wanted to mention it because I I, I actually thought it was quite a bit funnier than the first episode, especially Hannibal Barres's portion of the episode uh, was really good. He's he's very strong. Uh, I don't think it was as good in terms of presenting a solid vision. It was more like, let's throw a whole whack of jokes and ideas. Like, the joke per minute ratio was much higher, hence a lot of ideas that didn't go anywhere at all. And some kind of lazy pot humor, which I didn't really need. But there was also some pretty sharp characterization in there. And I, and I do think that their their voice is finding itself rather quickly. So I just wanted to throw them a little bit of love because I haven't seen that show get a lot of attention. Well, and speaking of, I, I look forward to checking in again with Chosen when the show comes back. Because that's one that has completely dropped off the radar for people. And um, I would be interested... I, I, for me, it took several episodes to kind of find his feet and make me engage in the characters. 
And so I would be interested in what you think of it if we jump in like an episode six and episode seven. I'm always willing to give an FX comedy another shot. Well, and if, if you watch Chosen, I'll try Broad City again. So maybe All right. we can Sounds fair. make that work. Let's uh, move on to the Saturday comedies <laughs> this week because, of course, they moved out of the way of the Super Bowl. Looking looking at your browser history and Girls Only Child. Let's start with looking. And we had a little bit of a discussion. Should this be a comedy or a drama this week? Yeah, I mean, I, I ultimately sided with putting it in comedies just because it's a you know time slot neighbor with girls and because we didn't have a whole lot of other comedies to talk about. But to me, the better aspects of this episode were sort of more dramatic. For instance, the, the scene between Don and surprise special guest star Scott Bakula, who I guess is going is about to be cashing a, a huge regular paycheck on NCIS New Orleans. Uh, anyway, uh, but as long as he's turning up for weird stuff like this, great. Anyway, I, I really liked the the Dom Scott Bakula scene, and I'm hoping he'll. I am, I'm assuming he's gonna be, he's gonna be popping in for a few more episodes. And um, I don't know. I, I I still continue to enjoy both the low key nature and the way that. Uh, the, the the Jonathan Groff character in particular seems to at least want to re, to readjust and like for instance that scene where where he and his friend acknowledge we have to try harder at stuff that was such an incredibly unusual moment well especially in episode three of the series yeah I, I mean clearly uh, the the Groff character is the point of irritation for a lot of people including me quite a lot of the time especially in the first half of that episode so i'm i'm really hoping that they can have that character actually make observable adjustments in a in a realistic fashion without sort of undermining what the show's doing well and there's there's several elements this episode that i enjoyed i liked it better than last week and i'm right with you on scott Bakula. i was like oh yay awesome let's get more awesome interesting roles for for this actor so i really don't care about ncs uh, new orleans but if he pops up more on looking, I'll be very excited, especially paired with Dom. Uh, but I also like the appearance of Russell Tovey, and I think that'll make the works feel more interesting for the Jonathan Groff character. And one of the other things I noticed that I really enjoy about that per performance is I noticed in this episode, and I noticed a little bit last week too, I love that, it's such a detail, but I love that he stress eats, and he stress eats carbs, and the show doesn't feel the need to point out that he's stress eating carbs. Because it feels incredibly natural and real. I feel like I know that character so much just by the fact that he comes home and he's had a shit day and the one friend has a beer and he grabs some like noodles or something. Yeah, there's always noodles. I hadn't picked up on that until you pointed it out, but it's it's true. Because that's something that a lot of shows will do, especially if the character is supposed to be like the chubby friend or something like that where they'll they'll be like oh, i stress you they'll just show them with a carton of ice cream in front of the you know, in their pajamas or something and it doesn't feel real at all and this actually does feel real and so there there, there are several touches like this throughout the episode that I, I think are more interesting less real is the whole prostitute thing don't care um it depends on where they're going with that i mean i i do if the if the angle is you know i'm I'm jealous of this guy because he enjoys his work and is open about it and is successful. You know, that angle is kind of interesting. But if they're going to transition him into doing sex work or flirting with sex work, I really hope that's not what they're going to do with that. But it really seems like it is. Or even just he calls him up and then that becomes a barrier in his relationship. I don't know. The other thing I've seen other people talk about this. I need much more of Dom's roommate because she's awesome and she gets one scene every week. <laughs> Yeah, she's she's really great, and it doesn't feel like a standard 
sort of straight lady gay dude sitcomy friendship yeah it feels very authentic to those two characters uh, let's talk a little bit about girls only child and hannah continues to be the worst <laughs> yeah let's see how are how are our rankings of horribleness doing this week i feel like hannah is still sort yeah. of shoshana is clearly one. the best this week but she's had so little to do that she's sort of getting off easy. Well, yeah. But, you know, based on what we see. And then who's next? Marnie's pretty horrible. So so then it, so it's it's Shoshana and then Little Space and then Jessa and Little Space and then Marnie and Hannah. Yeah. Jessa also got very little to do this week. So it was, it was really the, the, the Marnie and Hannah show. And I, I like how over time, the, the more we get to know uh, Adam's sister. Yeah, she's crazy, but she's still not nearly as bad as Hannah. <laughs> well, and one of the things I didn't like about this episode is that at the end, when she throws out Caroline, I like that what triggers it is when she starts badmouthing Adam. And when, when she said, he'll never be there for you. And of course, we saw he was there in such a huge way for her when she her life started falling apart at the end of last season, whether or not it was realistic. You know, we had issues with that finale. But... I liked that that was what pushed her over the edge and that when when he comes home and he's upset at her for having kicked out the sister, she doesn't say, she, you know, that I, she was insulting you and I couldn't take that because it's not she's not in head. She's too selfish to think that far or to really mm -hmm. you know feel like she has to explain, you know, what the issue was. But I do like that while it was an incredibly selfish act because she's a horrible person right now, <laughs> that it did actually was triggered by something theoretically positive. Yes, yeah. And I, I, although it did make it, it definitely made sense to me that she wouldn't vocalize at that moment because she's so in her head. Uh, I, I would like to mention the publisher sequence, which I thought was hilarious. Mm -hmm. And similarly, the 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 actual scenes at the funeral were oh, very difficult to watch, but also very funny. I, it's I still think that they've really nailed their tone late as of late. Mm -hmm. I just don't want. I do really like that positive element of Hannah and Adam's relationship actually being a supportive, loving, positive one, because it's like the only positive thing on the show at times, especially with everybody else being so lost. I like that relationship being stable. And so when you see both last week with the end of the episode and this week with Hannah acting in a way that it feels like that is going that, that she's tearing apart that relationship through her some of her choices or not making choices, as it were. Um, that's that's frustrating for me to watch, even though I'm sure that that's exactly what Lena Dunham is going for. So it's making my watching of Girls this season very interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, and there's also the other angle of it's a weird position to be in when you think to yourself, does Hannah deserve to be happy? <laughs> <laughs> Just like there are times when when despite you know horrible past actions, you can't help but think. Shouldn't he have just gotten sick of her shit by now? Well, and also, she's gotten worse. She's yes. gotten way worse in the past couple of seasons. Her dad calls her after having surgery, and she doesn't know about it or care. And season one or two, Hannah would have at least pretended to care. <laughs> is it better to, to pretend? Well, I think she would have thought she was caring, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah, and it has it. it, it is an issue of... Are they making her worse just to just uh, as a way of of pointing something out about the character, or is it like an, a really organic development? We'll have to wait and see on that. I think. Yeah, definitely. But I, I am really liking the season of girls so far. You? 
Yes, I would concur. Definitely more fun than last season. And compared to season one? Oh, it's too far away to remember, but it feels like it's about on par. Okay, let's move on to Archer Vice. Archer Vice. Um, it was mostly just a lot of Coke gags this week, which I was totally fine with. Coke gags and metric gags. Um, this this one had the highest... I, I Sometimes I like to have a Wikipedia page open for Archer just so I can get all the arcane, especially this week, um, uh, historical references, which... It, and to me, what's impressive about the show is like the, the blend of low and high humor. I don't feel has ever been more disparate and the low jokes are really 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 low and the high ones uh, really do require some research and and, and homework I, i've really enjoyed everything with pam just eating the coke <laughs> of course being a nerd i loved all the metric gags as well so so yeah the i think what your your point about the, the combination of high and low humor is, is spot on and i absolutely agree do you have any predictions for where this is going or or uh, any expectations i should say well it it feels like they're going to have to start having some adventures because it feels like they've spent almost the entire, almost the entire season in the mansion. Yeah, yeah, and yet we've not seen Babu. No, we haven't. I assume that's coming. And our final comedy of the week is Parks and Rec, Anne and Chris, which actually was the one that aired first of these, but it felt the most final. You know, it had a nice concluding kind of sense to it. What did you think of of this episode? Man, Parks and Rec really needs to end at some point. Uh, it was a good episode, but every time we spend time with the non-Ann and Chris characters, you know, the ones who have joined the office in the in like the th this season as when the merger happened, I always think I still don't know that character's name and I still don't find them that funny. So I think they're going to have a really hard time filling that vacuum. There's only one new character and I want to say his name is Craig. I could be wrong on that, but I think it's, I feel like it's something like that. Uh, and I enjoy his, I mean, it's very, it's very distinct. It's very shouty. So I could see it not, you know, you're clearly not a fan of that. And I understand why, uh, but it was working for me. And I thought that this episode not only worked very well to say goodbye to Anne and Chris, who let's be honest, have been completely underserved for quite a while, but it also, I thought it incorporated everybody really well and, and fit, you know, thematically very nicely. You know, an, another weakness of the show for me at this point, and it's really not fair, but it is true. Ever since Chris Pratt got ripped, <laughs> I find him less funny. Is that just me? Like, yes. he used to have this sort of schlub appeal or like quasi schlub appeal that he just cannot pull off anymore. Nope. That is just you. That is, he, I, I still think he's hilarious. And uh, the... The performance is the performance. However, I do think it would be interesting to get reactions from, like, to, because of course, I immediately go to the nerd answer of let's do a statistical analysis. Let's pull <laughs> hundreds of people and, and then look at a, you know, chart a graph of people's, of people's relationships with body image and comedy. Cause there's, of course, all, long been a, this notion of, um, in stand up comedy specifically that attractive people, can't be funny or aren't funny or you need to have undergone years of trauma as a, a less popular person. I, I, again, I, I don't think it's that. It's just that when I think back on this season, I just cannot think of a single memorable Chris Pratt moment. And I feel like they, I feel like they used to be a dime a dozen. Well, yeah, but I could say that about Ron Swanson as well. Yeah, it's true. But th then again, maybe it's just that both characters have, have descended to be being more sticky than before. And the, you know, physical transformation is just an incidental coincidence. Well, it's an interesting point, And I would love to hear from other listeners. Let us know, you know, how you are feeling about these different characters and the ones that are the most fresh for you and the ones that uh, maybe need a little variation in their shtick. Uh, what wins the week in comedy for you? Oh, I'd like to give it to Broad City just for improving 
quickly um, on certain fronts and f- just for trying other stuff out. But uh, I got to give it to Archer. Sorry, Archer Vice. <laughs> I have to give it to Enlisted. It was really good. It was uh, entertaining and heartfelt. It worked surprisingly well with the Super Bowl theme of the week. And uh, I look forward to, to more new Enlisted headed my way. So that wraps up our week in comedy. And we'll be right back with dramas and genre. So long ago, certain place, certain time, you touch my In genre and drama, we have Supernatural, Sharp Teeth, American Horror Story, Coven, The Finale, The Seven Wonders, Sherlock, The Sign of Three, that's their season finale as well, and Justified, Over the Mountain. And we combine these these categories because the, uh, you know, there, there's only so much TV right now that we're following. And with the Super Bowl and with the State of the Union, a bunch of shows took the week off. So we figured we'd just kind of lump them all together here. We'll talk reality next week with the Top Chef finale, but part one of the finale, eh. We didn't really have that much to say, so we'll talk about that next week. Um, for now, Supernatural Sharp Teeth. I'm just mentioning this because I love uh, one of the lines in here was fabulous. Of course, they brought back DJ Qualls, who I always enjoy when he pops back up as one of their fellow hunters. And I loved that they had the descriptive line, you know, Ichabod Crane looking fella to describe him. And it's a perfect, lovely descriptor. And when you contrast that with, of course, Ichabod Crane on Sleepy Hollow, I just love that uh, parallel. So the notion of Tom Meissen and and DJ Qualls both being described as the same character is wonderful to me. So uh, well done, Supernatural. I enjoyed this episode very much. Next is uh, American Horror Story Coven, the finale of The Seven Wonders. When did this show decide it was actually about Sarah Paulson? Because it was not at the beginning of the season, and it was maybe three episodes ago, and then it wasn't again, and then now it is again. Can I just say, and I'm going to throw this out as the question for this week, I don't know if there's ever been a season of TV that is so amazing on paper, just like transcendently um, just awesome conceptually in terms of casting, in terms of even some people behind the scenes, and then just fell so totally flat by the end. It's just... uh, And even even as far as this episode, certain elements were so great. But just the whole picture did not come together at all. I would say that the the roughly 10-minute stretch from Sarah Paulson and Jessica Lange's last scene together to sort of her vision of hell, which is probably about 10 minutes long, I feel like in an alternate universe, you could snip that out and insert it into a good finale, but this was not good otherwise. Nobody cares who the Supreme is. Nobody. Nope. Nobody cares. And as soon as, at the beginning of the episode, as soon as they have that whole music video Stevie Nicks thing, which I like Stevie Nicks, but come on. Uh, at the beginning where they're like, girls, one of the four of you will be the next Supreme. I was like, well, it's going to be none of them because they're presenting a false dichotomy. So clearly it's none of them. <laughs> Who could it be? I was like, is it, are they going to have it be the guy? That would be interesting. But the gender politics of that are not fabulous. And I was like, uh, are they going to bring Nan back from the dead and have it be her? I was like, oh, wait, they, they're going to think the show's actually been about Sarah Paulson this whole time and they're going to have it be her aren't they Uh, they i will say at least they didn't bring anyone back from the dead 
Yes. At least. Well, they did, though, because <laughs> we thought that Fiona was dead. Oh, yeah, but that doesn't count. I just mean, like, D Delphine or Nan or whatever. But anyway, uh, yeah, it was not is not good. Um, the notion the, that next season there will be no Jessica Lang, total Ryan Murphy control. Oh, that's that's kind of scary. I mean, last season, uh, I mean, there were two Tim Minier episodes this, this season, but last season he wrote the bookending episodes and another one, so it felt more like a Minier season than necessarily a, a Murphy season. This one felt a lot more like a Murphy season. And I think anybody who's been listening to the Televerse for a while will know that for us a Muneer season and a Ryan Murphy season are not created equal and uh you know which where our preferences lie but wow did this season derail yeah and it, it's almost making me wonder if I hallucinated last season being so good <laughs> well and uh, some of our listeners pointed this out as well the notion that last season started a little shaky but ended strong and this season conversely started strong and then ended yeah, obviously yeah, pretty terribly pretty also I think for me, the most upsetting aspect of that finale was, man, did Lily Rabe get the shaft. Oh, my gosh. I really liked her hell, though. That was incredibly disturbing and creepy. I mean, on the scale of some of the X-Files episodes we watched and we're going to talk about in a little bit here, maybe not so much. But uh, I really did think that was for her. It was very well conceived and uh, very well executed hell for her but yeah she's just gone. She's been the most interesting of those characters for, for a while now, and she's just gone immediately. Yep. And why does she have to die? We don't know. Like, uh, Madison doesn't die when she fails her thing. Meh. How does she get overpowered by Frankenstein boy? Eh. Just because. Because why not? Why wouldn't you? Anyways, any other thoughts on American Horror Story, Coven? Uh, I'm hoping that they're just in a pattern where every other season is good. So. <laughs> Star cool. Trek rules. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, let's move on to Sherlock, the finale, the sign of three. And uh, yeah, I wish we would get a little more positive, but I'm not going to get more positive right now. I've come to the conclusion that the three seasons of Sherlock are basically the Nolan Batman trilogy. Hmm. Hear me out. So first season, pretty solid. You know, origin story, sort of re-envisioning in a gritty not not too gritty, but relatively feasible environment. Second season, raising the stakes, big familiar villain everybody knows about, crowd pleasing, uh, critical darling, etc. Third one uh, comes after the events in the second one, which force a hiatus for our hero. Uh, comes back with an awful new villain with a funny voice. Um, hot mess. Me. <laughs> yeah, gen generally hot mess. Oh underwritten but overworked is this yeah is this sounding right to you that's sounding about right i and i do feel like i should stress because it's so easy to get to get negative because the elements of the season that have frustrated me are significant and are present in every episode but there is a lot of these three episodes that i did really enjoy and it that comes down to the performances those two central performances i still love watching these guys work and watching them play off of each other and a lot of the scenes in like moments for the season really work for me but the whole if you're looking at an entire hour, you know, hour and a half long episode or the whole season really doesn't come together for me. And that is down to the writing. And uh, let's talk a little bit about this villain, Magnuson, and the fact that not only do they double down on mind palaces, which I was warning a little bit earlier in the season when we were talking about it, not very effectively, but they they present a villain who is so demeaning and disrespectful. And those, those scenes are played. That's what they're trying to achieve, and they achieve it 
very, mm-hmm. very effectively. I do not foresee a way in which that character would not have been killed by somebody he was blackmailing because of the way he treats them. He he blackmails powerful people all the time. The notion, I mean, I believe that uh, Mycroft would have him killed easily, or any of those these people like the 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 aristocracy, the Lindsay Duncan character. I believe that somebody like her over the years would have had him killed way more than I believe that Sherlock would kill him. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of things about this that just strain credibility. The, this the whole notion. I mean, really, the the sticking point for me is the Mary twist, which. You know, you kind of feel coming early in the episode. Uh, And actually, I felt coming earlier than that because of something you said about her character and you're not liking what they did with it. Then I thought to myself, oh, she's going to be a bad guy, isn't she? Uh, I don't think that they pulled that off at all in a credible fashion. Well, because the thing for me that when I was watching the first two episodes that I one of the big things I liked was that character. And I really liked the performance as well. She was very interesting, very, uh, very likable. I really appreciated that they didn't do the whole you know, manufactured drama between Watson's uh, wife and his best friend. I like that they just get along swimmingly right away. That's that's great. And I, I was watching the first two episodes going, oh, my goodness, Moffat's finally written a female character that isn't River Song. Because he, he used to do that on, on Doctor Who at the beginning, you know, in his, some of his earlier episodes, there's some wonderful, very interesting female characters. And then when he took over the show, most of the recurring female characters fit very you know either a river is them or river is amy and they're all amy they they fall into a very specific range uh mm. for, and and then and then look we get to the third episode and she's river song now <laughs> yeah there is that but m- mostly it's just i him taking her back after all that just makes everyone involved seem either stupid or crazy. Yeah. Why would you need a tiny detail like, I didn't tell you my entire past and I tried actively tried to deceive you and lie to you? And how could you trust that person ever again? Yeah. I mean, you could if you were stupid or crazy. Well, yeah, there you go. But uh, it just was so much for me wanting to have your cake and eat it too. And it did not... It did not work. And um, the the ending with Moriarty, I mean, way to take the stakes out of everything. It's like, oh, there's actually going to be an, you know, a cost to his decision to kill someone, even though I don't believe that Sherlock Holmes would kill someone. OK, whatever. They're they're giving him a price and then they're immediately taking it away. Yeah. Um, oh, and it, it, I, th- I thought it was funny how I compared it to one lame superhero blockbuster already, but uh, huge shades of Man of Steel to that ending as well. Now let's move on to our final show of the week, which is, of course, Justified Over the Mountain. Hopefully we'll have a little more positive things to say, just because we feel like we've been a little Debbie Downer this week. But um, this episode did feel like a bit of a calm before the storm episode or a transition episode for me. I liked it, but it wasn't as memorable. And uh, while I very much appreciated the introduction of Danny Strong to this world, I always enjoy him, uh, there there wasn't as much for me this week to, to write home about. What What did you think? I think they're having real problems getting the stakes clear this season. I mean, we're four episodes in and I'm still not really sure what the story is. Like, is this this the season of Dewey Crow doing stuff? I really hope it isn't because I, you know, this this season, this episode, we see him get it, getting into some serious scrapes and sort of becoming more of a dramatic player, theoretically, which I don't know if I care about Dewey Crow that much. Like, he's a fun bit player to have for a couple episodes a season and he wasn't there last season which was a bit of a downer but as such a focal point i don't really know if that works for me 
Oh, the dramatic stuff with Dewey did work for me, actually. And uh, I really actually enjoyed the whole chase through the woods thing. That I mean, that works for me. But it does... I, as soon as you make him a dramatic player, then he has a has an expiration date. As soon as he's killed someone, Raylan's going to have to take him down. Yeah, I mean, as soon as he's a dramatic player, you're right. I think he is probably not long for the world justified, especially now that they've only got one season left. I mean... Next week, uh, as I understand, or rather tonight's episode as we record, is Supersized, which I don't think Justified has ever done before, which, man, they're going to really have to be pulling out some stops to justify that because it just feels like they, oh yeah, I see what I did there, Um, because it just feels like they really need to work overtime to get this season on track and in focus. I didn't know that they were doing that. Yeah, you're right. That is the first time they've done that, and that is that is very interesting. That has not been a good move from almost everybody's, as far as most people are concerned, with Sons of Anarchy. So hopefully it's just uh, things. Hopefully shit's about to get real for Justified this season. Um, but I did. I have. And I liked Amy Smart this week. I liked what they did with that. You know, I like exploring that a bit more. That was more interesting. I liked um, what we got with Boyd. The thing with Ava is that we know that she's not going away, guys, because she's a regular on the show. So if you're going to keep having her in prison, you got to give her more to do. Don't kind of try to tease out the is she going to get out thing because we, we know she's not going anywhere. Yeah, I mean, we'll see what's going on with the whole Danny Strong angle um he, I, I like the way that they they uh that they fold in people like danny strong and Patton oswald and have fun sort of toying with having uh, different sorts of physical presences on the show than we're used to and her reading of aren't you a little short for a stormtrooper was <laughs> easily easily the highlight of the episode but yeah uh taking a little bit longer to get in gear than usual which has me concerned what wins your week in drama Still going to give it to Justified. Come on. Yeah, it's still Justified. Uh, Though I will say Supernatural was in contention for it this week just because it was a less thrilling episode of Justified and it was a fun episode of Supernatural. But I'm still going to give it to Justified because it's still Justified. So exactly. that wraps up our week in TV. A few show notes. Our outro music is Sweet Petite by the Bicycles. You can find a post up for this at soundonsite.org. You can leave us a comment there, as well as, of course, drop us an email, theteleverse at gmail.com, or like us on Facebook to follow what's going on at Sound on Sight TV. If you want to rate or review us on iTunes, we'd greatly appreciate it. We have an M4A chaptered feed and an MP3 unchaptered feed. And, of course, you can also follow us on Twitter. I am at the Televerse, and you are... Uh, at Sucker Howell. And for those who may have skipped through the segment where you mentioned it, what is... The question of the week. Which series or season of TV sounded amazing in in concept or casting or you know some other aspect of, of you know theoretical existence, and then when it came to actually being on the screen, just totally did not work. Good question. We obviously, we already talked about it. We have our answer for right now, but uh, we, I'd love to hear from some other people who have uh, maybe a wider pool of, of shows that they've seen to let us know what some other contenders are. And with that, we will take a break and come back with our DVD shelf with Todd Vanderwerf of the AV Club talking The X-Files. Agent Mulder, I'm Dana Scully. I've been assigned to work with you. So who did you take off to get stuck with this detail, Scully? Actually, I'm looking forward to working with you. I've heard a lot about you. Oh, really? I was under the impression that you were sent to spy on me. If you have any doubt about my qualifications or credentials... You're a medical doctor. You teach at the academy. You did your undergraduate degree in physics. 
Einstein's twin paradox, a new interpretation. Dana Scully's senior thesis. Now that's a credential, rewriting Einstein. Did you bother to read it? I did. I liked it. It's just that in most of my work, the laws of physics rarely seem to apply. Maybe I can get your medical opinion on this, though. Oregon female, age 21, no explainable cause of death. Do you believe in the existence of extraterrestrials? Logically, I would have to say no. Given the distances needed to travel from the far reaches of space, the energy requirements would exceed a spacecraft's capabilities. Conventional wisdom. Do you know this Oregon female? She's the fourth person in her graduating class to die under mysterious circumstances. Now, when convention and science offer us no answers, might we not finally turn to the fantastic as a plausibility? The girl obviously died of something. What I find fantastic is any notion that there are answers beyond the realm of science. The answers are there. You just have to know where to look. That's why they put the eye in FBI. Back with the Televerse. This is Kate Kalsik, joined as ever by Simon Howell. And this week at the DVD shelf, we are pleased to welcome back Todd Vanderwerf, of course, from the AV Club, to help us talk about The X-Files. Todd, welcome back. Hey, it's good to be here. So what made you want to talk about The X-Files? Um, the X-Files is, is the show that got me interested in TV back when I was a, a young one. Um, it's also, it's still one of my favorite shows to this day and has many of my, my favorite episodes ever made. And it also, it, it does a lot of things well that I think contemporary television does poorly. So there you go. Well, The X-Files holds such an interesting place in the progression, especially of genre television, but just television in general. And it was really interesting because I have seen various parts of The X-Files uh, over the years, but I had never really jumped in with it because as long longer term listeners of the television will know, I am a scaredy cat. And The X-Files uh, often is, is scary and or creepy and or disturbing. They're very good at that, especially in their earlier seasons. And so I was basically just kind of traumatized from trying to watch it in college and just not being able to sleep afterwards. So this was, uh, it was really fun to jump into the series because I'm pretty sure if I had been not even like five years older, the, the X-Files would have been my Buffy. I was too young for it when it was on the air, but Buffy was the show that got me into television. Um, and watching this, the X-Files, I could see so many of the elements that made me such a TV fan about Buffy in the X-Files as well. So I was really glad to jump in with the show, and I, I wish I'd been able to see more of it. I saw about 30 episodes. I wish I could have seen more. You should have watched all of it. I know. In like this past week, I should have watched all 200 episodes, but... Unfortunately, I did not have the time. <laughs> no, the la the last season is awful, so you miss nothing by mostly skipping that. Okay, well, it's good to know. Simon, what was your relationship with the X-Files? How much had you seen? For some reason, 
when it came out in theaters, I saw the first X-Files movie and virtually none of the series prior to that. In fact, only recently for the purposes of this shelf did I, did I watch any of the series. And for the for shelf purposes, I watched about 20 episodes, I would say. I tried to hit all the best. I, for a representative sample, I really wanted to try to find time to watch some of the worst episodes as well, which unfortunately I did not have time for, although I'm sure that would have been hilarious and instructive. And so I, I'm really an X-Files tourist, I guess. What I find interesting is the way it seems to have disappeared from the conversation a little bit in terms of, uh, not I guess yeah, in, in terms of influence, and I and I maybe for the maybe because of the fact that Chris Carter, who you know the the series mastermind, has re really never managed to come up with a second act in terms of his contribution to the to the zeitgeist. And I, I find all that you know this sort of lost avenue is terribly interesting. But um, I, I think it's fascinating as an incubator for future talent. I think the the highlight episodes that I watched are are really interesting. The way the show handles its its apparently very silly material with, uh, for the most part, utter seriousness is it seems like it shouldn't work, and yet frequently that's what actually works most about it for me. I I agree, and that that straight faced approach to to these ridiculous situations is was absolutely refreshing to me having seen so many other genre shows that feel the need to go ain't it wacky especially with with their uh with their music or with the the different you know production elements you know where they have maybe not this the characters winking at the camera but you know sometimes they do but but even just the other elements of the episode and so to then go back to the x-files and to, to watch no let's assume what if there really were vampires what would happen or what if they're really you know this you had this lake monster you know and and there are these even like you said Simon, some of these absolutely absurd things like the fluke man like whatever uh but they, these two central characters i think i think that's what the show gets right more than anything else is that staying true to Mulder and to scully and to how they would react and and that that the honesty of those characters to who they are is what really grounds the whole show. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, you mentioned um, Chris Carter hasn't really followed this up. And I think that's because he hasn't had to, he has so much X-Files money that like he never has to do anything again in his life. <laughs> He's uh, tried this, though. Yeah, he had, you know, he has, but it, notably not since the show went off the air. Since the show went off the air, he's done the movie and he hasn't really bothered with anything else. He's he's just now sort of getting back into the game. Um, and I wonder how much of that is driven by, like, you know, obviously doing a show like this is really tough. And he did he did it on network uh, for nine years. And, like, that's that's a long time and that, that's a lot of effort. And, um, you know, he's he's... I, I don't blame him, I guess, because I, but I think in the last couple of years, the show's reputation has sort of come back. Um, it, it's definitely come back from where it was like five years ago when it was still sort of this cautionary tale of everything that could go wrong if you let a show run too long and if you didn't answer all your questions right away and blah, 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 blah. And for better or for worse, now, you know, we have shows that I, I'm not a person who subscribes to the theory that these are bad shows because they had bad finales. In fact, I love both finales. But now we have Battlestar Galactica and Lost. And and that has sort of like made made people relook at the X-Files um, and, and Twin Peaks. Uh, and they're both um, sort of been rejuvenated by that process. And I, I think um, 
I think one of the things that's really interesting about X-Files and one of the things you couldn't do with it today, like if you look at Fringe, which is a very similar show to it and eventually just gave up trying to do it, is they did the the split between the standalones and the uh, mythology episodes. And I think in many ways the standalones have held up better than the mythology episodes. I don't know if that's true for a first-time viewer. Um, but uh, the the standalones, uh, you know, it, it just seemed so strange because at the time, like we were all complaining about, uh, you know, why aren't they just hunting the aliens every week? Isn't this a big deal? Why are they going after all this other stuff? Uh, but the more that, you know, I watch it, the more I appreciate that and the more that I wish I kind of wish there was a show that was doing that on the air right now because it allowed X-Files to be so wild and experimental and, and all over the map tonally. It's funny how the more TV I watch, the more appreciation I get for standalones in, in general. I know that, Kate, you and I often talk about how wouldn't it be amazing if, if one of these last seasons of Justified, they got to do an all-standalone season? Be, you know, sort, sort of more like the, the, the first season, except with the confidence they have now. And I think in, in terms of watching X-Files as a new viewer, partially it's because all of the guides that I sort of researched on the best episodes, you know, most of the episodes selected were standalones, but whenever I would happen upon a mythology episode as opposed to a standalone, I would inevitably find it, it less satisfying. And not only in a, I'm not totally following this kind of way, but just the mythology itself is only part, you know, it, it's, it's interesting in parts, but in terms of the big picture, I'm not sure how compelling I find it. Well, especially because this is a show that ran for nine seasons, and you can tease out oh, what happened, all these questions at the beginning of a show, but after a while, if you expect viewers to care about what you're doing, you have to answer some questions while you introduce new ones, and that's the thing that I think that Lost in Battlestar did really well, um, but I think that's something that, that this show struggles with, where after when, you're, when you get to season like five, and, and Scully still somehow is they're trying to make her the skeptic or she doesn't believe in aliens. It's like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You can't have had all of these seasons of, of buildup and questions and she gets abducted and all these different things. And then still have the character try to be the same. You need to have closed off some of these questions and introduced new ones. And I don't think that, I think that's the element that they, the mythology episodes really struggle with. Welcome to the conversations we were having in 1998. <laughs> uh, no, but I one actually one thing that I think I think they were bad at that, but in a way that that's different than their reputation was for, because they actually answered a lot of questions every season, but they were sort of terrible at reminding you of what they told you already um, and sort of keeping in their head all of these different elements because, like, by the, by, by the middle of season six, they had essentially answered every major question in their mythology, but then they just sort it just sort of kept going. <laughs> and, like, they keep changing the answers, too. Yeah, yeah, they do. That, that's one other thing is that, um, like, the black oil, which is, which is a major element, is probably one of the better, I guess, monsters, for lack of a better term, on the show, um, was so important to the mythology. And then, like, there's a great season eight episode, a uh, mythology episode called Viennin. Where it just is completely different. Like what it does is completely different. And that that's fine. I'm fine with the standalone thing. But but yeah, it can be very frustrating if you're very into the mythology. Um but I, one thing that I think was was a struggle for them is that they they had trouble figuring out what their story was gonna be because ultimately the answers were kind of boring. Like the answer to what the aliens were planning to do was invade the earth, and that 
is exactly what you'd expect aliens to do. So it, it was not an incredibly exciting answer to that question. Well, but I do think uh, they get away with a lot of that just based on the strength of the characters that they're able to create. I mean, yeah. the, I mean, cigarette smoke, I mean, cancer man, whatever. No, cigarette smoking man, uh, which who they introduce in just the, in the pilot is just sort of standing there. But that character is incredibly compelling. I don't. You know, I think this maybe this is the time to ask what you guys think of Confessions of a Cigarette Smoking Man, the episode. Don't know that I like this whole frustrated writer thing that they gave him. But he's a, you know, for, if you're going to have a rather stock alien invasion plotline, having, you know, that that element of this conspiracy center around that figure, it, that's going to do a lot to make it work. I, I really like that episode. And I the the failed writer angle is maybe a little bit too goofy in terms of how it's played out, but... I do think it's a pretty compelling episode in and of itself. Did did Skinner ever get a similar episode? Because I would like to have seen that as well. Skinner got uh, a number of episodes focused on him, but they were not like like uh, profile episodes. They were like paranoid conspiracy thrillers. They were like like seventies conspiracy thrillers that just happened to star Skinner. Um, there's a really good one. I think it's in season five, maybe season six. It's called SR nine seven one. That's um, uh, a, a good one for him, and also he had the sh the episode Avatar in season three, which is uh, kind of kind of dumb, but also interesting because it's fun to watch somebody else be the lead of the show. And the Lone Gunman got a couple like that as well, including their own series. Uh, we'll have to get there one day. The series with the spookiest pilot ever. Yes, in retrospect. Yes, in retrospect. But uh, but yeah, I'm curious what you guys think of, of these other figures because when. When you look at the X-Files, and I'm sure we'll dive into Mulder and Scully here pretty soon, but when you look at the X-Files, you inevitably the conversation comes up, oh, what about those last couple seasons where Mulder's not really around, or the last season where they really tried to center it on these new characters? And looking a little bit into some of the talk about what Chris Carter's plans for the show were, the notion that he thought you could continue this show without the two central characters is just baffling to me. Because, you know, yes, I, I enjoy the, the other actors they bring in, I, especially I think Doggett works more than he should because of Robert Patrick. But this was never a show that I don't think was going to work without Mulder and Scully. It, it's it's funny, especially in, in light of Lost and everything that happened with that and, and the showrunners, showrunners saying it was always about the characters and people protesting. Whereas, if anything, The X-Files proves that, yes, characters are always, I mean, it, I guess it helps when you have great characters like these, but yeah, you, you take Mulder and Scully out of the equation and then all you have is, you know, the mythology and, you know, and the cases, which are sometimes interesting and sometimes not. So yeah, if anything, it, it reflects well on, on the, it's about the characters folk. And what's really interesting is that the best episodes of the X-Files and even like the worst episodes of the X-Files are really good at building guest characters who come in for one week to get killed by some monsters. But the show sort of sketches in their life very quickly and very well. And at their best, those guest characters become as compelling as Mulder and Scully. And uh, one other thing that I think is, is sort of uh, unique about the show is that it just has those two characters like today you would inevitably have a bunch of other people who were series regulars, you know, by like season four or five. And that just, that, that doesn't happen on the X-Files. Like the closest thing I can think of at post X-Files is probably supernatural. And even they ended up adding, uh, as Kate can probably tell you, a bunch of people who were, who were, you know, there to sort of share the workload with the, the brothers Winchester. 
Um, the X-Files didn't really do that. You know, they felt if they needed to give David Duchovny or Gillian Anderson a week off, they just went way off book. And like, that was fascinating to me always. There's just so many elements or ways in which, you know, and now again, like sort of like Simon, for you, the more I watch other shows, you know, I'm glad that I came to the X-Files after having seen more other shows that it's better than basically, because there are so many ways that this show should not work based on, you know, what we're used to being the recipe for for a good show and only having two main characters is a big part of that. The fact that I mean, I love the treatment of their relationship. It happens entirely off screen. At some point in the middle of like season five or six or something, they become a couple and we just like never see it. And I think that is wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, I could give you the official timeline of how they get together. <laughs> no, it's, but yeah, that, that's the thing is that like, um, season eight, I think is vastly underrated fandom because Duchovny was only around for half of it and he seemed really bored with the show. So the episodes he is around for, he's just kind of like, Hey guys, what's going on? Uh, <laughs> even, even Vienna is like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but he one of the things that's really great about it is you know scully got pregnant with his baby like off screen <laughs> like you never see them sleep together and then he disappears and it's sort of the show dabbling with like early tv serialization where it has one storyline that that informs every ep episode and it's really great stuff and it's really uh potent stuff and i actually think if they had tried to center the show on robert patrick and had found somebody other than Annabeth Gish, I think they could have made a few more seasons of it. Cause I think, I think the Robert Patrick, John Doggett character is a really strong one. And what I liked about it was they sort of leaned into the problem of, of having to bring a new character in because they basically just said, what if a guy from a cop show showed up on the X-Files? What would that look like? And it's great. It's, it's fantastic. People who say season eight is bad are wrong and they should feel bad. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and that's another element. I mean, granted, we're working off of a list of recommendations from, from, from all sorts of different people and looking up lists online. And Todd, you did an article at the AV Club of 10 Essential X-Files episodes. So obviously, we're going to be watching the highlights. But that being said, there are a number of episodes I, I was just sort of calling back to you with my memory. I was like, oh, yeah, the episode where Jesse L. Martin is an alien playing baseball is yeah. wonderful, and that doesn't show up on a lot of top ten lists. There's there were a number of episodes that I mean, this was a remarkably consistent season a series, especially uh, in, in the the episode season like two, three, four, like that range. Most of the episodes that I'm I'm, I'm remembering a lot of episodes that don't show up on top ten lists, and I remember liking all of them. I, I I would say though that out of the highlight reel that I watched, I find it interesting that in those early seasons when the sort of mythology slash conspiracy angle is a little bit more contained. I find that that's when you get most of the super creepy episodes. Like the highlights I watched later, you know, they included some good episodes, but nothing as creepy as the creepiest of those early seasons. Stuff like uh, Dehan De Verlitz and Home and um, what's the Brad Dorif one? Beyond the Sea. Beyond yes. the Sea. Yeah. Beyond the sea, slightly different. Yeah, I just I, I felt I felt like most, and of course the cockroach episode, the freaking um, cockroaches. War oh. of the war of the caprophages, uh, caprophages, caprophages. Anyway, um, it it felt like most of the really 
effectively creepy ones were in those early seasons. And that's interesting that you mentioned that to me because uh, Dehan de Verletzt and War of the Copperfages are both like early experiments in the show going really funny, like especially uh, to, you know, the fans of the show and um, who were like the tone of both of those episodes was very controversial at the time, as was the tone of the episode uh, Humbug. Which yes. I don't know if you guys watched that one, which which is like the first all out comedy episode yet also has a very creepy monster that is just sort of weird and scary to look at. Um, I, I think another thing that influenced that was when the show moved production between Los Angeles and or between Vancouver to Los Angeles in season six to keep David Duchovny happy. Um <laughs> Then, you know, season six, when you're shooting in L.A., it's harder to do this sort of spooky, moody, shadowy stuff when you've got so much sun. But also in season six after the movie, it's interesting because the first half of that season is it basically turns into a comedy series, uh, which was very controversial at the time. But like it's a long string of comedy episodes because that is what they were interested in writing after after the big movie. Well, and the, the like you say, the uh, the. Some of the creepiest episodes are also some of the the funniest. That that the Copperfages uh, that had some. I was just like laughing out loud consistently through that episode. And then it's it's like I said, one of the things I really enjoyed about Buffy, where it's funny, funny, funny. Ooh, not funny. And uh, and and I I'm still traumatized. I watched this last week, and the 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 cockroaches under the skin is gonna it just it's gonna live in a little part of my brain and i'm not gonna be able to forget it uh, and i just like when they have a cockroach just run across the screen so you think that it's on your tv because the actors don't respond to it at all it's just horrible it's, it's horribly terrifying and i it freaked me out oh cockroach across the screen was such a good move while uh. also <laughs> making me laugh it's it's one of those things the show does really well Dehan de Verlitz, in particular, I just watching it, I was so struck at how much it feels like proto Buffy. I mean, I know it's after the movie of Buffy, but still. Yeah. No, there's obviously when you go back and look at the first two, even three seasons of Buffy, there's so much X-Files influence there. We talked earlier about how there's a problem, you know, now with with genre shows uh, having trouble taking things seriously and sort of winking at the audience. And um I, I love Buffy. Like, like X Files and Buffy are the two most important shows in, in my development as a as a TV fan and, and TV uh, person. But I, I I think a lot of that can be laid at the the feet of Buffy because it seems like an easy thing to do and it seems like the smart thing to do to say you know oh none of this is really happening this is all crazy stuff um, but it's it requires such a mastery of tone um, whereas X Files once they had those two actors. Uh, David Duchovny and Gillian Anderson, they could do just about anything because I think the premise of that show is so airtight that there's really nothing you can do to it to assail it. And that includes an episode where there are a bunch of killer kitty cats, which is <laughs> just the, just, just terrible. I but, regret that I did not get to that episode. Oh, it's, it's, it's awful. I mean, there are some, there are some God awful episodes of this show, but it's all fine because the premise is so great that everything just snaps right back to it in the next episode. And you're like, right, I love this show. And when you talk about those characters, I think we should talk about the performances a little bit because I've, for a lot of people who, if you're not a TV person, if you haven't watched Hannibal and The Fall, you might not be aware that Jillian, Jillian Anderson has been you know, doing lots of stuff recently and giving wonderful performances. And she's a fantastic actress. For a lot of people, she's just, oh, wasn't she on The X-Files Oh, forever ago and wasn't that show kind of like 
you know, kind of silly. And I, I, th- I think she doesn't get from your typical American TV watcher anywhere near enough respect because I think she's fantastic in this. But the the real discovery for me in watching this was I had completely underrated David Duchovny because I haven't seen any Californication. And I remember liking his performance. But I think both of them are just, they're so good. And again, this is a show that could easily not work. And watching that first season, Gillian Anderson, she's 24. She's 25. She's so young. And she's giving such a wonderful performance. Yeah. Um, in particular, I think I want to single out Gillian Anderson. I, th- I think she gives one of the great uh, female performances in TV history. And, you know, I, I don't know if people have forgotten about her so much as she just willfully retired for a while to, to raise her kids and, and move to England and not work as much, which <laughs> when you've been on a network TV show for nine years, you know, and done two movies of it, I, I don't blame you for not wanting to work that much. Um, but, you know, she's done a lot of wonderful work in films. Um, she's had a very varied career and she's sort of starting to poke her head back into the TV sphere these last couple of years. Uh, and that, that's, that's very welcome to me, but, but her work on X-Files just was so good at grounding the show. And she was so good at convincing you that Scully, you know, clung to her scientific beliefs in a way that on the X-Files is very interesting because clinging to like logical skepticism on the X-Files is like, um, you know, the people who do that on X-Files are basically religious fanatics. Uh, only religion is science. And it's a very weird dynamic that the show sets up, especially within the realm of ostensibly science fiction. Um, and, and she was so good at playing that that she made it look easier than it probably should have been. Yeah, they they put her in a really tricky position because the show is so obviously on Mulder's side in terms, you know, philosophically or however you'd like to put it. And as Kate and I discussed uh, off mic ages ago, like Mulder is almost never wrong. Yeah. Even, you know, no matter how highfalutin his theories may be, he's generally on the right track. And there are entire episodes where Scully's role is not even glorified sidekick. Like she, she'll spend uh, an entire episode by the phone doing some research or, you know, it, it's there aren't enough episodes where she's really the, the center of attention, which is too bad. So she really does have the trickier role in in terms of sticking out as a performer. Well, and that's why the the few Scully centric episodes, you know, outside of the mythology is obviously when she gets you know abducted and there's all the bait. Then she gets a lot more to do. But in the earlier part of the show, those few Scully centric episodes are some of my absolute favorites. So that's Beyond the Sea. I think Never Again is fascinating. I love that episode. I, I you you hear Jodie Foster is a talking tattoo, and you're like, okay whatever but it's this wonderful examination of of who she is and and why she is the kind of person that is she has been moved in her life to this position i mean it's it's wonderfully dark it's not a kind necessarily portrait of her Mm. and one of the things i find just just fascinating is that beyond the sea this has just always been a rumor i don't think anybody's confirmed it but it was reportedly written by glenn morgan and james wong because fox wanted jillian anderson off the show they wanted to replace her with somebody more conventionally attractive and they wrote beyond the sea to be like you know here's what we have why would we replace this wonderful actress um with you know somebody who's more of a traditionally sci-fi type um, and it, it's, it is, I agree, one of, one of the very best episodes of the show. I think it's in their initial order, um, along with the, the episode Ice, uh, which are both great showcases for her. And, and Ice is a good showcase for Duchovny as well, and for their sort of budding partnership. The 
I, I find it hilarious that at, at a certain point she was considered not attractive enough, considering <laughs> wasn't it only a few years later they were crowned the sexiest people alive? Well, it's the, I mean, Gillian Anderson, if you're of a certain age and um, attracted to women, is like a formative crush. Like, like for me, she is, you know, a very formative crush. And I hear that from so many people my age. Um, and uh, it's just, it's baffling to me that they did not think that because she wasn't, you know, blonde, I guess, that they didn't think she was the sort of person who could be the lead of this show. It's almost like they're intentionally fuglying her. You're frumping her up like with, with the giant glasses and the not particularly uh, attractive for her facial structure haircuts and the, you know, like, it's like they're trying to make her not look good. And so, to, you know, the fact that they just didn't, I guess, weren't aware that she was gorgeous is uh, entertaining to me. And I think there was a, I mean, I could just be totally speculating here, but I think, especially for those early seasons, there was a really interesting viewer dynamic that arose because, you know, people who were attracted to women had a, had a huge crush on Gillian Anderson. People who were attracted to men had a huge crush on David Duchovny. People who were attracted to both, I assume, had crushes on both. And meanwhile, on the show, they were, they weren't, you know, doing each other and they weren't doing anyone else. So <laughs> I, I think, I think that was what really helped help those characters stick out in people's mind is like oh if only i could meet them <laughs> show them a good time for once um like chris carter and this this carries through into his series millennium where it's really weird that this married couple appears to never have sex chris carter is just sort of very devoted to the idea of like a, a courtly romance basically um like he wanted Mulder and scully to be in love but not be in love um, like, like with all the trappings we think of that, like they're in a sort of divine mystic love where they're, you know, very devoted to each other and very um, everything they do is for each other. But also they're not, you know, hindered by all of the like having sex or, you know, paying the mortgage or all of the stuff that like a normal couples who are together for nine years would would get hindered by, um, which is a very weird way of looking at the world. But, you know, that's. That's uh, uh, Chris Carter's thing. And I, I also just want to say that uh, when this show was in its third or fourth season, the British press called Gillian Anderson the thinking man's trumpet. And that is a wonderful phrase uh, <laughs> that you should use more often. Yeah, when you're watching those early seasons, you wonder why Carter didn't just make them siblings. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Well, I think that would have robbed the show of one of the elements that really brought it to popularity. Um, the fact, yes. Although, come to think of it, thinking of Supernatural again, that, that doesn't always... <laughs> yeah. Was, it, was not a barrier. <laughs> <laughs> again, for me, the handling of that relationship, and after a while, I did start to get annoyed with the, are they gonna kiss? Oh, they don't. Because it felt like it was really forced. But I like the notion that they somehow they know we're watching them and yeah. or the show knows that we're watching them and their sex life is none of our business. And so that's why we don't spend any time on the show with it. Yeah. Yeah. I like that explanation. Yeah. One of the things, you know, we talked a little bit about um, the humorous episodes of the show, but season three of this show is one of my favorite seasons of TV of all time, despite containing the killer kitty cat episode. <laughs> I have to hunt that out now. Just I'm going to have to watch that. And part of that is because it's sort of the hype of they have all their like they have all of their best writers on the show at the same time at that point. It's the one season where they have both Darren Morgan and Vince Gilligan doing stuff and both doing terrific stuff. And the X-Files was such a writer driven show. Like today we think about, you know, we, we give 
we might, if you're doing a review, you might give the script writer, you know, script credit, uh, but also say you're mostly blaming everything on the showrunner, which is fine because today's TV writer's room uh, environment is so dependent on the showrunner taking his pass or her pass and saying, you know, this is this is what the show sounds like, this is what the dialogue sounds like, etc. But X-Files, like, apparently Chris Carter would do very little, like, very little of that. Like, he just sort of let Vince Gilligan script stand, and he is quoted as saying that he didn't do a thing to a Darren Morgan script because he never knew where to go. And that gives the show a very unique feel and everything, you know, when it's clicking, when it's in, like, season three, when everybody's at the height of their powers – um, it feels like a bunch of different shows mashed together, but held together by these two really strong performances that keep everything as a through line. And, and that's just a fun dynamic to explore. And it's one that I think TV has gotten away from to its detriment. Yeah. When you look at the, the writers, like the credits, it's just sort of a, a who's who now, you, obviously Vince Gilligan, everyone knows from Breaking Bad, little show called Breaking Bad. But then you, you also have other producers. Michelle McLaren was an executive producer on this show. You have uh, people like Howard Gordon and David Greenwalt and Kim Manners, who's Supernatural fans will know, did a bunch of work for them. I mean, just the, the number of names of writers that I now am familiar with, but who I had never seen their work on the X-Files is ridiculous. And when you talk about how it's a writer's show, another thing that I love that sort of crops up in the more humorous episodes is the way, you know, there's, you know, the show has a sense of seriousness about itself and it asks you to accept that, yes, there's vampires and yes, there's the devil and yes, there's aliens <laughs> and this is all here and it's all cool. But at the same time, you know, you'll get all these, you know, jokey bits of, of detail or even casting like that whole episode where they cast Darren Morgan and then proceed to mercilessly make fun of his character for the entire episode. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, I, I think it's a, a funny, I don't know, not funny, I guess, but I think it's a, an interesting aspect of the show. And, uh, it's one that, you know, is, is maybe not talked about enough as a reason for why the show is good because the X-Files is in a lot of ways a throwback to seventies cop shows. And, um, that's a, a thing that sort of comes through loud and clear as you watch it. But at the same time is very much this this in, this thing that would influence so many shows, because if you look at any show on the CBS lineup right now, it's basically just the X-Files, only they've taken out the sci-fi elements and except for person of interest, I guess. And that, you know, that goes for shows I really like and shows I really hate. It's like they took the visual aesthetic of the X-Files and they turned it into like something you could pick up at Costco. <laughs> well, and, and I mean, this is also the show that basically uh created the serial serialized and standalone and this is the hour long i guess obviously moonlighting was before this but the will they won't they thing is really significant here it was another yeah you know, i think maybe this was when uh after moonlighting when when the networks were like okay we i guess this really can be the single thing that gets our audience you know gets ourselves a huge audience obviously not paying attention to the fact that the show is has many many strengths but you know the the thing that got picked up on the public culture was the Mulder Scully romance, you know, yeah. there's, there's just so many elements to, to the X-Files where it's like, again, like I trace a lot of things back to Buffy because that's, that's where I really started watching television critically, but X-Files was doing a lot of that too. And, and, and one of the little things like that, it was, was, was the X-Files the show that started the all black eyes means you're evil thing? Because I can't think of any show that did it before black oil. I can't either, but I've seen, you know, I know it's, it's such a familiar trope. It has, it has to have predated X-Files. I think it might be a comic book thing, honestly. 
Well, I kind of feel like, you know, black things denoting evil yeah. is is <laughs> sort of the oldest trope in the book. So I can't, I don't think we should give the X-Files credit for that. Okay. Well, if if anyone can think of a of a TV show that did black eyes equals possession before the X-Files, please let me know because I've been scouring my brain and I would love, you know, maybe Children of the Corn, but aren't they like white eyes? I don't know. But I would love to, if anybody uh, out, out there listening has an answer for me, drop drop me a line. Now, before we run out of time, we've talked a little bit about some of these characters. Are there any other of the recurring characters you guys would like to talk about? Or shall we move on to favorite episodes? I always liked um, Mulder's various informants. I always liked Deep Throat and, and Mr. X. I don't know if you guys saw it because they were in mm-hmm. it so rarely, but they were always kind of fun when they'd pop up. And um was less excited by Marita Covarrubias. But that was because the show never really used her well. And, um, of course, I think we have to talk about Alex Krychek, who is one of the great Weasley villains of all time. He's just he's just you just love to want to punch him in the face. It's he's so good at that. Uh, Ari, the third informant. I love Laurie Holden's capability to just be a, a, a despised character on genre series across the decades. <laughs> I don't th- I don't think that she was ever despised so much as they just, you know, they never used her. At that point the show didn't really need the informant character, but they had they had one just in case. So the uh, I had a lot of fun with Deep Throat and and X and those are both characters that I remembered from various TNT marathons or something over the years. But um for for me with uh with Crycheck, I really I struggled with that character and I think part of it was I, in the episodes that I saw, it seemed like the X Files they were they were kind of struggling to figure out who he was. It's like they brought him in to be eye candy, and especially with certain like haircuts and looks. They, like I, at one point, he's he's like rocking a leather a giant leather jacket, and he's supposed to be like a. It feels like he's supposed to be like a fifties heartthrob or something. It's very odd. Uh, but I did consistently want him to just be punched in the face and or killed and gone. Yeah. Yeah, you got the sense he was really into himself. The character, yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> oh man, oh man. Well, uh, let's move on to some of these these episodes because uh, the one of the ones I want to make sure to talk about because it gets so much praise, and I, I, apparently I'm being a negative Nancy here. Postmodern Prometheus, I think, is a beautiful episode. The cinematography is great. The it's very interesting. But nobody talks about the fact that this character we're supposed to like is a serial rapist who who gasses and then rapes women, and the show has does that a couple times because they don't they kind of glaze over that in small potatoes as well. Um, so I'm curious if you if you guys noticed that at all. I, I did notice. There's a whole lot of rape on this show. It's definitely a problem with small potatoes. I I and you're gonna have to go read my review of Postmodern Prometheus to see why I don't think it's a problem there, but. I actually don't think that character is a rapist and it's not because I don't think he's like impregnating women against their will, but like (laughs) his, like his father did all of that. Like he is the result of an unfortunate experiment his father performed or his brother, both of them. And like, um, the end of the episode muddles things because everybody's like, Oh, these women are okay with their hairy babies. And isn't that horrifying, you know, but that's also a dream sequence. Um, mm-hmm. That doesn't actually happen. So yeah. it's it's an episode that's gotten, I think, and part of that is is Chris Carter gets a, sometimes a little in over his head. Um, but I, I do think that that episode, it has a big reputation, especially within the show's fandom, for being about a serial rapist. I think it has come by it unfairly, whereas with Small Potatoes, it's absolutely the case. 
because they're playing that episode so much for humor, and I think it's hilarious. Yeah, uh, m- much of that episode. I understand the tonal imbalance that comes up where you don't want to. You know, they basically wanted to have that last scene with Mulder and Scully, and and they and then they extrapolated out. That's my guess, at least the rest of the episode. Um, so not wanting to actually look at the reality of some of you know the the trauma that these women would have. You know, moving forward, uh, it's understandable. You know, it's a tricky thing to balance. It sort of tries to like like build the foundation for it, Small Potatoes. Small Potatoes is an episode I love. It's it's one of my favorites of the show. Um, but if you think about it too long, you start to like get freaked <laughs> out by it. And that I think it was, was sometimes a problem with Vince Gilligan's scripts on this show that he was very good at, at playing in one sandbox and had trouble like incorporating elements of the other. Where, whereas Darren Morgan was very good at having his, his funny episodes be creepy and creepy be funny, etc. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't ever shake the feeling watching Small Potatoes that the foundation wasn't so much that last scene as wouldn't it be funny if we cast Darren Morgan and then kept talking about how he must be a rapist because he could never get a date normally. <laughs> well, and let's talk about Darren Morgan episodes a little bit because they're, they're well loved within the X-Files community and, and fan base. And there's a good reason because they're all really good. Yeah. Yes. All of them <laughs> without exception. Um, it's not I, a coincidence. Th- this wasn't the absolute first episode of X-Files I ever watched, but it, it pretty much was. I, I saw a couple before that, but I, I did. I, they weren't enough to make me a full-time viewer. I, the first episode I ever saw was Jose Chunks from Outer Space. Nice. Which is sort of generally understood to be, you know, a bad episode to start out with because it plays so much off the tropes the series had established. But I, I loved it. I, I, when I first saw it, I think I was 15, and it just was... It just hit me like like a bolt out of the blue. It was just like one of the greatest things I'd ever seen. It remains to this day one of my favorite episodes of television ever made. I think it's um, I think it's so insightful and so powerful and has so many great things to say. Well, and that's I would have never guessed that because I feel like that's a perfect episode if someone doesn't know what's going on. I don't think you need to. I think it, I think it's really accessible because you have that Jose Chung figure who is asking questions and can be an audience surrogate. So that's interesting. Um, the, one of the episodes that I love, I always, I, I tend to go to the comedic episodes, but I love bad blood so yeah. much. Yes. That's a really good one. Um, uh, Clyde Bruckman's f- final repose is also Darren Morgan. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That is probably my favorite of his episodes and possibly my favorite episode period. Yeah. Yep. It's the one they won the writing Emmy for. And it's, um, it's a it's a beautiful episode. I, I, I don't think I've seen it in probably 10 years, but I, I just I have so many fond memories of that. Um, and it, it predisposed me towards Everybody Loves Raymond, which I, I think is uh, some someday I'll have to come on and talk about that because I think that's a good show. But it predisposed me toward Everybody Loves Raymond because it made me love Peter Boyle so much. He is so good in that. And <laughs> another one of their great early guest spots. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we talked we mentioned home briefly, but. Uh, I, I now the the cockroach episode is creepier for me because I have just a brainstem kind of cockroach thing. But home is also very effective, and uh, that was one of those episodes that I that I saw like at ten o'clock or eleven o'clock at night uh, on like reruns somewhere, and I was like, okay, clearly I can't watch the X Files because I'm not going to be sleeping tonight. Uh, it's so effective. Yeah. I, I, a it felt like their take on Texas Chainsaw, kind of, which I was fully appreciative of because everyone who likes horror films should love Texas Chainsaw. And also I found it uh, amazing slash creepy how how much the last shot of last week's episode of True Detective seemed like almost directly an echo of home. Sorry, not the last shot, but the shot of the house 
which is and I watched them almost back to back. It was eerie. True Detective is basically home with all of the like um the all of basically understanding that this is ridiculous stripped out, which is which is fine, like but uh, yes, I agree. Oh man. Well, any other final final thoughts on episodes or final thoughts on the series? We could talk forever about the X-Files, but unfortunately we are nearing the end of our time. Um, I, w- I just want to mention briefly, the this is another Vince Gilligan episode, the episode Pusher from season three. Yes, that's a good which one. is another great uh, scary episode. And um, especially for like early scary episodes, I always thought the the character of Tombs, who appears in the episode Squeeze and, and Tombs in season one, was a very creepy, effective villain. Um, the show did a lot of riffs on sort of the vampire motif, and he was one of their earliest and, and their best. Simon, any other episodes you wanted to make sure to mention? I do want to mention that I find Ice slightly overrated, if only because it's so much the X-Files does the thing that I can't sort of... I can't extrapolate anything anything else out from that, although it's not bad. I feel as though uh, people who have seen them may want to chime in on the movies at this point. Ah, yes. It is very odd that these... Because I made sure to watch them both. It's very odd that the most recent film, which is set after the... Uh, da The Apocalypse Has a Date, uh, doesn't mention it at all. But I yeah. think it also benefits from that. <laughs> I really want to see them do a third movie because they're past the date of the apocalypse now. And clearly it hasn't come like it, Fox is obviously going to reboot this show at some point. It's why it's one of my favorite like parlor games is to figure out how you're going to reboot X files and do it as a TV show again. Um, and I think they need to play with that. I think they need to play with the idea that Mulder was wrong about this one, like ultimate thing. And um, like, I think that could be a fun dynamic. Um, but, but yeah, the second movie is, um, while it has its moments, most of them stemming from Gillian Anderson, and it's probably not as bad as its reputation, though it would be hard to be as bad as its reputation, it's, it's not a very good movie. Um, the first one is not a terribly good movie either, but at least is kind of fun in that campy mythology way. Yeah, the the first one I thought it was uh, was a lot of fun. I was watching it just you know with all these other episodes, and so it just felt like another yeah. episode. I mean, I don't know that it feels like it needs to be seen in a movie theater. There was a certain level of, oh, really? Is the car going to, like, I was waiting for the cars to crash into something and then wait two seconds and then explode into a fireball because they always do in the movies, yeah. apparently. <laughs> but uh, but you know, I, I, I had heard some, you know, pretty negative things about both of the films and I, I, had, I had fun with them. I think, you know, maybe not go to seek them out at a movie theater, but you know, rent them, watch them on Netflix. I think they're fun. I think the people were just really disappointed in the second one because it was basically a standalone from the original series, which I thought was the right way to go, but it was a weird, weird, weird standalone. Yeah, I'll be shocked if there isn't another revival of some kind. Although, in response to the whole going past the date thing, I think the first episode or next movie of whatever the revival is should just be them shrugging for an hour and then moving on. (laughs) Well... Obviously, I was a really big fan of of this. I was so glad to catch up with it, and I I look forward to. I really want to more than many of the shows that we've caught up with on the DVD shelf. I really want to be able to have seen all of it. So I want to have seen all of the X Files. So this is something that I'm sure I'll start chipping away at over the summer. But uh, I really enjoyed the show. If you haven't seen the X Files, if you haven't set the time aside, m- make the time. If you like genre TV, this is a great show. 
And it's oh. a show, I know that this is anathema to, to people nowadays. It's a show you don't have to watch all of to get why yeah. it's so good. Like you can, you can do a representative sample of the best episodes and, and have a really good time with it. Two, two last quick things. One, I think actually my favorite scene of the entire series is probably the Moby Dick conversation in Quagmire. Yes. which is a is a good synecdoche for the entire series and my last thing is actually a question since we've since we've talked about the best uh, todd what would you say are, are some of the other must-see worst episodes for anyone who wants a, a like sort of the clearest picture of the whole thing well if you want you have to watch teso dos bichos which is the um the killer kitty cat episode from season three um the early episode space is really terrible um there's an episode i can't remember the name of it it's in season five it's about killer trees is not mm -hmm. good. And then uh, season nine is is full of bad episodes. And I think what's interesting about the bad episodes from season seven, eight, nine is that they're very bad in ambition, which was not usually when the show went ambitious, it turned out at least okay. Um, and like in season seven, there's an episode directed by Gillian Anderson called All Things, which is just ridiculous. Um, but is so interesting because it's trying to do something so different from the X-Files template and just sort of utterly fails at all of it. It's one up. It's an episode that I can't entirely hate for that reason, but yeah, it's a, those are some of the ones to look at if you want to see the show at its worst. And one other thing did occur to me. Uh, we got, we have to mention one of the all time iconic theme songs. Yes. So there's some, there's some over the top music or not particular subtlety is not the X-Files strong suit most of the time. Uh, but that, that is a, there is an iconic, great theme song, and there's some other there's some other really entertaining music throughout the series as well. Yeah, and the visuals for the intro are so perfectly dated that in later series, in the later seasons when they change it, I was really disappointed. Todd, thank you so much for coming on and uh, talking X Files with us and prompting us to catch up with the show. Where can our listeners find you online? Uh, I am at on Twitter at TVOTI. Uh, my writing appears at the AV Club, and um, you can also sort of kind of find me at and my podcast at the uh, the address tboti.net. Well, thank you again for coming on, and thank you everyone for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Televerse.